Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, it's Thanksgiving week and an exciting week for the Biden transition team. This week, President-elect Biden announced the first members of his new cabinet, an outstanding and diverse group of men and women as leaders of his foreign policy and national intelligence team, including Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, Alejandro Mahorcas, first Latino Secretary of Homeland Security, Avril Haines, first female director of national intelligence, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, ambassador to the UN, now back in the cabinet as a cabinet post, and John Kerry, climate change international envoy. Soon to come are leaders of President Biden's economic team. And among them will most certainly be one of our very first guests on the Bill Press pod, Jared Bernstein, senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and chief economic advisor to Joe Biden when he was vice president. So today, as a special Thanksgiving treat for you and for some insights into what President Biden's economic priorities will look like and what the new administration might do about the big issue of income inequality, we revisit our interview with Jared Bernstein back in summer 2019. Jared Bernstein, good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thanks for joining us. You know, so we hear so much talk about and have for so long about income inequality. Let me just ask you to start off. How bad is it? How real is it? It's very real. And whether it's bad or not is a matter of your perspective. I do think it's extremely problematic in lots of ways. I think it's responsible for many of the problems we face today, uh, all the way from slower macroeconomic growth than we'd like to see to uh, political upheaval, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I think just a few kind of baseline numbers to orient our listeners. Uh, uh, we're, we're back to levels of income and wealth and wage inequality that we haven't seen since the late 1920s. And People may remember that didn't end well. The Gilded uh, Age. Yeah. In other words, so for example, uh, back uh, um, uh, the uh, the share of uh, income going to the top one uh, percent uh, peaked out at a bit north of twenty percent in the late nineteen twenties, and that's that's where it is now. If you go back a, a few decades, back to say the sixties, the seventies, ten uh, percent of all national income was held by the top. Now it's doubled, it's 20%. If you talk about wealth, which is a lot more concentrated, and in my view, a lot more connected to many of the dysfunctions going on in our economy, political corruption, for example, um, same thing, a doubling, but in this case, a doubling from 20%, that is 20% of all wealth held by the top 1%, to 40% uh, of all wealth. So you've got, uh, the top uh, narrow group they're controlling um, more wealth than the bottom half. And is that, um, 
why? <laughs> what are the what are the causes of that? How did it? And and why does it just keep growing? I don't think that there's a single cause. It is multi-determined. Uh, uh, there's there's numerous perpetrators. Certainly, one of them is um, the decline in worker bargaining power, and you can think of. Uh, uh, fewer unions is being linked to that, no question. We've had a, a decline in uh, the private share of unionizations down to 6%. At its peak, it was, uh, you know, uh, four or five times that. Um, we ha and, and, and with that has come, uh, conversely, the rise of employer power. Uh, one of the things that economists talk about now is the concentration of firms within industry so that some of the big firms, and people know who I'm, you know, the, the Apples, the Intels, some of the hospital conglomerates, mm -hmm. these firms now control enough of an industry. In retail, it's Amazon. These, these firms now control enough of their industries that they can set wages and labor standards. So they're kind of taking what used to be a government function, setting labor standards, Standards, pushing back on inequalities through those kinds of policies, taking that into their own private sector hands and, uh, and maximizing their profitability, often at the expenses of their, of their workforce. Uh, the financial sector has uh, grown uh, a, a great deal while the manufacturing sector has shrunk. Part of that's globalization, which also has its fingerprints on this inequality problem. And the financial sector is a sector with tremendous inequalities embedded within it. Uh, then I think you get to the interaction of all this concentrated wealth and income and power and politics, which in this country uh, is is more permeable. The, the barrier between concentrated wealth and and political policy is uh, is more permeable than in almost any and not almost than in any other advanced economy. So inequality. You asked, how does it keep begat? How does inequality begat more inequality? Because the wealthiest among us can buy. Not just the politicians they want, that's kind of an old story, but the policies they want. And so we see a tax policy, which is another cause of the mm -hmm. problem. We see a tax policy under Trump, you know, a guy who was uh, you know, elected through this whole faux populism kind of agenda. We see here a tax cut that exacerbates inequality by shifting even more income up to the top. So, so both the private distribution and the after-tax distribution are pushing in the same wrong direction. I wanted to ask you something, uh, you used the phrase earlier, um, because you hear income inequality, but there's also wealth inequality, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're not the same thing. So, so uh, if you, one way to think about it is uh, income is a flow and wealth is a stock. So you get your income month in, month out, and uh, some of us, if we're uh, um, uh, earn enough relative uh, to our expenses, we can put some aside to save. And that's wealth. So uh, wealth is our savings, but then when you get into the big leagues uh, up there in the top of the wealth scale, wealth is your assets. And so if you look at the, if you look at the, the, the uh, wealth holdings of those in the top, even 10%, you're, you're going to see very little earnings from paychecks. Paychecks mean very little to the to these mm -hmm. folks. They mean everything to the median household, the household right in the middle of the scale. But it, but it's all about assets. And 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 if you look at asset appreciation, the extent the extent to which you know we talked about inequality begetting inequality, wealth begets wealth. I mean, it goes back to the old song by. Uh, by, Rich uh, get richer, right? Yeah. What's the old song about uh, God bless the child by the, the famous jazz singer whose name I'm blocking? Uh, Billy Holiday. The old Billy Holiday song, you know, uh, them that's got shall get. <laughs> that's uh, that's actually a, a compounding formula. If you go back to uh, to early uh, the early economics training, the uh, 
the fact that if you have these, uh, um, uh, you start with a large base of wealth and you've got our financial markets uh, generating the kind of asset appreciation they do, especially relative to pretty stagnant earnings and incomes for families in the middle, that's why wealth has become so uh, concentrated. So building on on the uh, numbers that you, you mentioned a little earlier, um, uh, I looked last night at, in 2017, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, on the site inequality.org, uh, last year, the top 10% had nine times the income of the bottom uh, 90%, the top 10%. The top 1% had 30 times yeah. the income of the bottom 90 The top 0.1%, 188 times the income of the bottom 90%. When most people see that, I mean, it's hopeless, right? I mean, they just feel it's definitely they don't not have a chance. They may feel that way, and I, I, I certainly uh, understand being incredibly discouraged by these, especially as you said earlier that the numbers are going the wrong way; they're getting worse. Yeah. Uh, but it's important to remember, especially for those of us who track these things historically that these numbers have gone up and down. And there have been periods on our history when I mentioned er- I mentioned earlier, there have been periods in our history where there was half as much inequality as, as there is today. Instead of the uh, uh, top 1% of wealth holders holding 40% of the wealth, they held 20%. Now, you might still argue that that's uh, too high. And we're always going to have more inequality here than, than, than in, in, in most other advanced economies because of our approach to capitalism versus theirs. But I think... Um, People should be uh, not discouraged, but uh, truly incensed by uh, the extent of the inequality you just ticked off. I remember uh, when you were chief economic advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, that President Obama at one point said that he thought that income inequality was the greatest challenge facing the country today. Yeah, I was very proud of the president for 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 setting it up that way. I just just kind of a what did he do about it? You know, he. you have to remember just how hamstrung he was. I mean, Congress decided from the get-go that they weren't going to do anything to help this president. And in fact, he made a lot of proposals uh, that would have left us with more progressive taxation, with improved labor standards, with higher minimum wages. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were all blocked. He did uh, try to, uh, late in his uh, tenure, try to change some of the labor standards that he could do by regulation and rule changes, particularly an overtime rule so that middle class workers could once again get uh, be eligible for more overtime that they should get. Uh, but that never went through. It hit a court challenge. And in fact, the Trumpies are pushing the other way on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the unions. One um, proposal that I've seen, and in fact, was in the recent New York Review of Books, is that the labor unions, um, their declining power, of course, has contributed, as you pointed has out, it, yep. right, to the inequality. Um, but that they have maybe a weapon that they can use in the big labor pension funds. And the way they decide and what to what companies to invest in and what kind of policies is that part of a solution? I think it is, and I, I the uh, labor folks certainly know all about that weapon. And I think that um, they've been fighting wars on so many different fronts, uh, particularly as their membership has declined, and some of those pensions have been underfunded. So they've got uh, headaches in that regard as well. 
But uh, both the unions and other um, shareholders have engaged in some sort of proxy actions to try to get companies to uh, uh, behave in ways that are uh, more helpful to average working folks. And they've had a little bit of success in that regard. And in fact, I think that is, uh, to some degree, an untapped pressure point. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, um, we've talked about wealth inequality. Elizabeth Warren talks about um, and a black a difference between black and white wealth mm. inequality. That is a, a, a really critical difference. You know, we, I, I mentioned earlier uh, the uh, median household, meaning the household right in the middle of the wage or income or wealth scale. <clears throat> so uh, uh, if you look at the median net worth, which is a good measure of wealth. That's your assets mm -hmm. minus your liability. So you have, to, you have to take debts into account because they're, they're negative wealth. Um, if you look at the net worth of the median you know, white household, it, it's something, but it's not much. I don't have the numbers in my head, but it's probably you know, in the tens of thousands. And it's largely home ownership. You, know, you, don't got, you don't have a lot of median households mm -hmm. walking around with a stock and bond portfolio. But sure, home ownership is a key source of wealth for middle-income whites. If you look at uh, African-Americans, median wealth is just, fluctuates around zero. And especially after the housing bust, uh, it, uh, it, 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 went, uh, it went negative. So, so uh, yes, that is, she, she's absolutely right to, to highlight that problem. And even if you, and you, you'd be completely incorrect to think this, but even if you thought that we lived in a post-racist society, you'd be wrong. <laughs> There's a lot of evidence every day how wrong you would be. At, at least on this issue, on, on the absence mm -hmm. of wealth for uh, black households, you have to acknowledge the legacy of slavery because African-Americans were never able to even begin to accumulate the kind of wealth that, as we said earlier, begats more wealth. Um, there are network effects, neighborhood effects, education effects. Basically, where you, where you start out in this country is way too indicative of where you end up. And that puts minorities and African-Americans in particular at great disadvantage. You did mention the tax cuts. Yes. First, the George W. Bush tax cuts, I guess, and compounded by the Donald Trump uh, tax cuts, um, both exacerbating this problem and rewarding the people who are, who are at the very top. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, How uh, big a factor? Um, it is a, uh, a real factor. It's, uh, it's a secondary factor to the uh, private sector dynamics that I described earlier, the, the ascent of finance, the decline of manufacturing, globalization, uh, the, uh, the loss of unionization, the diminished labor standards, um, the, the increase in, in the firm concentration. But all of that uh, is pushing the private, uh, or I should say, uh, what, what, what economists call the primary distribution of income, meaning the distribution of income that happens from market actions or market outcomes. So the market does its thing, and there the, there, there's a, a distribution of income and wealth. And then the government gets in there, and it typically redistributes. And in fact, uh, our, our tax system remains somewhat progressive, but there is much less of the kind of redistribution that uh, pushes against inequality and more of the upward 
redistribution that exacerbates it. So while it's a secondary factor, you're right. The Bush, uh, George W. Bush tax cuts and then later uh, the Trump tax cuts uh, have exacerbated uh, this problem um, on many levels. I mean, for, for yes, there is a, a huge cut in the corporate tax rate. So corporate profitability, which shows up in 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 the stock market, uh, the stock market is is basically a metric of uh, expectations uh, around future corporate profits. Uh, you know, the, the uh, 80% of the value of the stock market is held by the top 10%. So if you're going to do something like cut corporate taxes, it's going to boost corporate profitability. That's going to raise the value of share prices. That's going to help the wealthy. So that's that's part of the Bush. Uh, I'm sorry, that's part of the Trump tax cuts. But another part is uh, um, one that I really gets under my skin, especially with all of Trump's phony trade you know, stuff where he kind of tries to pretend like he's helping working people. Uh, the Trump tax cuts significantly will exacerbate offshoring because they actually have something called a minimal uh, rate for global companies, for multinationals that can pay even less than the reduced corporate rate. So encourage more people to look encourage offshore. more offshoring. And again, right. that's one of my causes of that's one of the causes I ticked off around inequality. So that that, too, will make it worse. Let's flash forward to um January 2021. Uh, uh, let's say there's, a, God willing, a new Demo a Democrat in the White House. You are uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, what priority do you put on income inequality and what would you propose to do about it? It would be way up there at the top of the list. I mean, it might be number one. Uh, it's cer certainly the racial dynamics that we described earlier, mm -hmm. the, the uh, wealth inequality uh, therein uh, would be would be way up there. And uh, uh, what I would do about it or what I would encourage my principals to do about it um, would be to uh, start with uh, tax policy, um, tax policy that would reverse everything we just said. And in fact, if you look at the tax ideas that you're starting to hear from the Democratic candidates, that they are exactly that, not just to roll back the Trump tax cuts, but to try to help middle and lower income people with expanded uh, tax credits typically uh, attached to work. Uh, here at the Center on Budget, we talk a lot about uh, refundable tax credits and how important they are. Well, there are great ideas from many of the candidates of ways to significantly expand uh, those uh, pro-work uh, wage subsidies that would uh, both lift a bunch of people out of poverty and push, I think, pretty hard against against income inequality. But I also would be, have have a, a, a kind of a trade agenda that um, uh, put workers and not corporate interests at the heart of trade policy. Uh, obviously, Trump has pretended to do to do that, but in fact, he's done the opposite. And that would involve, and interestingly, I will say uh, that uh, candidate uh, Elizabeth Warren recently released a plan that that uh, does this sort of thing. I would have mm -hmm. a, I would have a real, I would have a very uh, significant industrial policy push. Uh, um, my economist friends often chide uh, this idea as picking winners, uh, and, and we don't pick winners in this country. The fact is, we picked winners all the time. We do it through the tax cuts. The tax cuts picked winners. The tax cuts picked winners. I just described some a minute ago, offshoring multinationals. But the way we pick winners is which firm has the most connected lobbyist. That's a really dumb way to pick winners. <laughs> and in fact, of course, it exacerbates inequality. What I would do is I would urge my principal to look around the next corner and try to figure out where the U.S. can grab global market share. And one of the great places to do so would be in the kinds of ideas in the Green New Deal. Somebody out there, some country out there is going to sell 
uh, battery energy technology to the rest of the world, solar, grid, uh, uh, wind, and, um, uh, and I'd like that to be us. Uh, I think that that would create significant production jobs for middle and low wage workers, and uh, and, at the, and that would help push back on inequality as well. One follow thing, you, 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 you know, you're, it's not a simple. This is what I would advise the candidate. It's not a simple question. Um, we have to do a. Uh, we have to get right to work, and I actually suspect the next president will do so to really repair labor standards that have been so eroded. Raise the minimum wage, which now I understand just uh, read something about the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, the federal minimum wage has been left untouched for the longest time on record. It's $7.25, which any listener knows is ridiculous. Now, many states have acted on their own, but many southern states have not. So the federal minimum wage is kind of like a southern minimum wage now. The overtime rule I mentioned, uh, there's lots of misclassification of, of, of workers as, uh, as self-employed when they're really W-2 employees. So, so there's a lot I would do in the labor standards space. Before we take a little break, could this ever, do you have envisioned the day, you, you wonder sometimes, why there's not more public reaction um, or outrage uh, at this growing uh, inequality gap. Could it ever lead to the point where people are in the streets? I mean, there's a revolution, government just breaks down. You know, it's funny you it should It has say, in the past, right? Yes. And Other societies. It's, it's, you know, I'm an economist, not a political scientist type, so I, I don't know that I have a great answer that I, I will tell you this, though. I recently, was at a panel. Was on a panel at a very classy conference with uh, you know people flew in on their jets to get there. Um, <laughs> Davos, not, not no. me. Yeah, a Davos type thing, but it wasn't Davos. And uh, and I was on an inequality panel. I was sort of the token lefty. And um, this guy who was running the panel, who is I think worth about a, at least a billion. Uh, he's a, he's a hedge fund guy. Um, was basically telling the audience, look. The pitchforks out there look like they're getting pretty sharp to me. And we, in so many words, we yeah. have to throw these folks a crumb. And yeah, I have to say the audience was very unresponsive. I think they viewed him as a, like a traitor to his cause. And he was saying, let's just give them a higher minimum wage so maybe they'll leave us alone. So I don't know that I understand enough about uh, the dialectics of history to really be able to answer your question effectively. But I do think that tension is there. And I th certainly think that it's uh, helped Bernie Sanders uh, come in ascendancy. Mm -hmm. And there's even an argument that uh, Donald Trump tapped that, uh, tapped that sentiment as well. Right. It's just his thing was blaming all these other people for your problems. Today's podcast with Jared Bernstein brought to you by the Labor's International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, under the leadership of Terry O'Sullivan, the Labor's Union, over half a million strong, a real powerhouse in the American labor movement. Uh, they are active in construction work, building infrastructure. They're active in the energy area, building everything from pipe, pipelines to new solar panels and wind farms, active also in the field of healthcare workers. We salute the great men and women of LIUNA and direct you to the website to find out more about their good work at LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A dot org. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Another gap between... That I always find fascinating between what CEOs take home and what your average worker oh, yeah. takes home. In the multiple hundreds. Yeah. Right. The last I've seen in 1980, it was 42 times the average yeah. worker. Uh, today, 361 times. So the your average CEO is taking home 13.94 million, and your average Joe or Jill lunch bucket taking home $38,613. That's got to be a factor here. Contribute. It's a huge factor. I mean, that, that, what you're giving me is essentially yet another indicator of the kinds of inequalities, the kinds of gaps we're talking about. And those numbers are reflected in many of the uh, percentages I was uh, ticking off earlier, the share of wealth or income held by the top. Um, but it just it just makes you, it, you wrap your head around that for a minute. So somebody is uh, and, and their average income is in the tens of millions. And then compare that with someone who's in the, in the, in the middle of the scale. I'm not even talking about someone who's mm -hmm. in the bottom of the scale. And their income, it tends to be around 50 or 60,000 for the median family. Now, when you start looking about uh, at what it's, uh, what it's like to get by in an American city on that kind of money. Now, somebody like that isn't poor. They don't fall under our poverty line. But when they have to pay for housing, for child care. You've got both. Husband and wife working. Husband and wife, so there's transportation, and if they're both working, that's a child. You know how I, any of my any of our listeners who have had children know that child care is a huge expense. You know, tens of thousands of dollars a year if you have a couple of kids. I mentioned health care, uh, transportation, and then um, uh, if you're able to put a little bit aside to save. So you've got this recent finding by the Federal Reserve, and I thought it was interesting that it came out of the Fed because. They try pretty hard not to put a thumb on the scale, showing that the share of, uh, of households who couldn't handily come up with uh, 400 bucks to meet uh, an emergency expense without borrowing or selling something or, or, or putting it uh, on a credit card that would be tough for them to service, uh, that, that share was uh, between 30 and 40%. Now, it's lower than it was. And I looked at it for African-Americans, it was about 60%. It's lower than it was a few years ago, so it's been improving. But you're talking about people who, if their car breaks, they're kind of screwed. Whereas other folks, if their car should break, they've got 10 other cars in the garage. <laughs> so the it's not just we, we tick off these numbers about wages and incomes and shares. I, I know I'm a guilty myself. But if you actually think how it plays out in people's lives, that's what we're talking about now. Right. And while this uh, well, the wealth of that the top 10 percent, 1 percent, 0.1 percent has grown and grown and grown, the wages have basically flatlined. They've right? been pretty stagnant. Now, recently we've uh, done a little better on that, and that's partly because when the unemployment rate gets very low, workers get a bit more bargaining power. And, and as, I, as I think you can tell at the heart of my economic and inequality model is a lack of bargaining power. That's why a full employment economy has always been so important to me, both as a matter of just dealing with some of these living standards issues I was just talking about, paying for housing, paying for health care. Your kid gets sick. And if you're up if you're up there in the income or wealth stratosphere, 
boom, they've got all the help they need right away. But there are families who uh, have trouble uh, paying for even uh, preventive health care um, who are who are in the middle of the scale. So, yeah, I think you have to think about how these things play out in both kind of relative terms, but also just in in terms of uh, absolute living standards. Uh, another issue that your boss, uh, Joe Biden, and others uh, are talking about on the campaign trail is um, the, the lack of the failure of so many major corporations to pay any federal income taxes. Um, 60 out of the last year, 60 out of the Fortune 500 paid no income tax, and yet they had a total revenue stream of $79 billion. Uh, many of them, got, and he, he, Joe Biden talks a lot about Amazon, um, paying no taxes on a $11 billion uh, in income. Uh, how do we get at that? Well, remember, this is a, <clears throat> a problem that's been exacerbated by a tax law change under Trump that, in fact, has cut corporate taxes, and particularly for multinationals who uh, who can outsource uh, their uh, their production and uh, send their profits to low tax, hide their profits in low tax places and and count their expenses, which they can deduct in high tax places. So this is a tax code problem and it is a tax enforcement problem. So if you look at the plans of some of the folks who are uh, both candidates and other Democrats who are starting to think about precisely this problem, uh, one of them is to close loopholes in the tax code, of which mm -hmm. there are many. We could do a whole show right. on, on loopholes. Many of them are corporate, but many of them are on the on the personal side. Uh, in fact, you mentioned Amazon. They've had uh, years where they've gotten uh, essentially rebates from the government because they've been able to deduct so much they from their tax bill. $129 million last year. Yeah, rebates. So, so, Amazon alone. Rebates, exactly. So so that's, that's because they were able to deduct some sort of losses. So these are all these are all tax avoidance measures. They tend to be legal. Um, they're not tax evasion. They're tax avoidance. And 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 the reason is because our tax system has been bought and paid for by those very concentrated uh, uh, wealth folks of whom we're precisely talking about right now. And this gets back to the thing I said earlier. Our our, our fundamental problem is this is a permeable barrier between wealth concentration and and uh, national policy, including tax policy. So you have the Amazons of the world essentially buying the tax code they want. Um, the uh, You asked what to do about it. Well, uh, write tax law that gets rid of those loopholes, but just as important, just as important, enforce it. Uh, if you look at the funding that the IRS has uh, mm -hmm. has seen, the enforcement division at the IRS, it's just it's just tilted down year after year after year. It's a big issue for us here at CBPP. So yes, you you, you must improve. Uh, we must improve the tax code in the spirit of what I'm talking about. We also have to enforce it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who says I have a plan for that <laughs> uh, for everything, uh, she has proposed uh, a wealth tax. She has uh, two percent on. Um, Income over five fifty million dollars and three percent if you're in the billion dollar category. Good idea. It's a great idea, uh, but uh, it needs to be enforced. So this is something we we haven't done 
uh, in this country before, by the way. We do, we do the, to the extent that we tax wealth, we tax property. So it's not like we've never done it. Uh, but uh, uh, her idea is pretty revolutionary in that uh, we're talking about uh, taxing wealth in a way that uh, we haven't before. And uh, by the way, to her credit, she does her homework. Uh, to her credit, uh, she's worked with some of the most knowledgeable tax scholars in the world. And they have, I've talked to them as well, and they believe, and I believe them, that this can be enforced. But it's going to be something that will involve uh, a lot of work by not just our enforcement agencies, not just IRS, our IRS, but uh, the tax enforcement agencies of other countries. Because remember, that kind of capital is really mobile. It vacations down in the mm -hmm. Cayman Islands and it hides all over tax havens uh, in, in the world. So we're going to have to really hold hands and jump together on that one. Uh, and another idea that's gotten a lot of attention, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has an awful lot of power as a freshman, or certainly gets a lot of attention as a freshman. So Well-deserved. A 70% rate on uh, in, personal income uh, above $10 million. Again, another great good idea. idea. Another great idea. No, no, it's not a good idea. It's a great, great idea. idea. <laughs> no, I think it's a great idea. Now, you look, one of the things that I very much admire about AOC and about Warren, you know, interestingly that so far, most of the ideas we're talking about come from women, so that's kind of inspiring. Uh, one of the things I like about them is is the boldness of their ideas and and their their aspirations. Uh, so, if you too often Democrats start where they want to end up, and so where they end up mm -hmm. is uh, far short of where they started. Uh, so, uh, but if you look at the economics literature on this, and it's been done by you know, Nobel laureates, people who uh, really know their stuff, um, they will tell you that that type of a high marginal, ta relatively high marginal tax rate. So, as you said, it's not 70% on anybody; it's 70% above 10 million, which takes us to the you know top 0.1 or 0.01 of the top. 1%. Right. So we're talking about a very, you know, the, the oxygen gets very thin up in that part of the income distribution. Uh, but um, the, the, uh, the, the research on that suggests that it can be done uh, with, uh, with proper enforcement uh, without uh, the kinds of distortions that the anti-tax folks are always squawking about. So at the end of the day, are you still a capitalist? I am a capitalist, I think, at the end of the day. I'm not, I'm not sure what all of these terms mean. I know people throw socialist around these days. I, but I think I'm probably, uh, I think, I think I'm, 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 I'm certainly still a, a capitalist. And, and I think the reason is, is because at my core kind of uh, economist self, uh, I, I really believe that, this, that the system we have, if it's managed properly, um, has the capacity to enable everyone to realize their potential. That doesn't mean everybody will end up in the same place with the same amount of banknotes in their wallet by a long shot. We'll always have some inequality. But I do think there is a characteristic of a, of, of, of a, of a, a kind of a flexibility to a capitalist economy that when, again, when it's, when it's managed to control the kinds of excessive power that has distorted the income and wealth distribution so much. It's given birth to these inequalities we've been talking about now for the past few minutes. Uh, when, when, when that kind of excess is properly uh, held back, then I think the potential of people to realize uh, both their economic, their spiritual, their intellectual potential is strongest in this kind of a system. Uh, but that's not happening now. And we've got to get back there. 
Jared Bernstein. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And there we go. That's it for today's Thanksgiving week special. Our interview with uh, Jared Bernstein, who was chief economic advisor to Joe Biden when he was vice president. And you watch. He'll be the head of, if not a key member of Joe Biden's economic team in the White House. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. I keep reminding you, but it is so important. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just bring up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in a part of our team. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Now have a great weekend. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.